Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Financial Times Big Read, a weekly podcast featuring the best of our long-form reporting from around the world. I'm Anna Dedder from the Opinion and Analysis Desk. Purdue Pharma faces more than a 1,000 lawsuits, claiming it ignited and fuelled the US opioid crisis, says David Crow. Prosecutors say the company exaggerated the benefits of its painkiller, OxyContin, and its marketing practices are sharply criticised. But it has also emerged that through their ownership of the generic opioid maker Rhodes Pharma, Purdue's owners, the Sackler family, have a far bigger market share than realised, says David. Like many salespeople working in the US pharmaceuticals industry, Carol Panara had often heard about the legendary bonuses on offer at Purdue Pharma, the maker of the now infamous opioid painkiller, OxyContin. She recalls, I remember one of their reps telling me you could make $40,000 or $50,000 a quarter in bonuses. I thought, wow, there are actually companies paying that kind of money. Why can't I find something like that? I had two kids that were getting ready to go to college. It sounded as if it was too good to be true. In 2008, Ms. Panara decided to quit her job at Novartis, the Swiss drug maker, and joined Purdue, a career move that has since become the source of bitter regret. Over lunch at a diner in Medford, New Jersey, she recounts how she became concerned about the tactics Purdue used to increase sales of OxyContin a drug that has been blamed for sparking the US opioid crisis. Ms. Panara claims she and her colleagues were instructed to boost sales of OxyContin, a potent and addictive painkiller, by aggressively targeting inexperienced doctors while underplaying the risks of abuse. Ms. Panara, who left in 2013 and who was last year subpoenaed by the state attorney general in New Jersey, says, I feel bad that the company was so blasé so negligent about taking responsibility. I feel they misled the public, they misled the doctors, and they misled their salespeople. The actions of Ms. Panara and her colleagues at Purdue have become central to the legal case that prosecutors are now building against the company. There are more than 1,000 lawsuits brought by states and local governments in the US, alleging the drug makers' marketing practices ignited and then fueled the opioid crisis which claimed more than 42,000 lives in 2016. The litigation, which is expected to reach court early next year, is designed to extract hundreds of millions of dollars from the company and its owners, the billionaire Sackler family. Public officials say they need the cash to help offset the bill for the health epidemic, which was recently pegged at $79 billion a year by the US Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Purdue's defence will not be helped by the revelation in the FT that the Sackler family also owns one of the biggest generic producers of opioids, little-known Rhodes Pharma. Ms. Panara was not mistaken about the bumper pay packets at Purdue. In one quarter of 2009, 
She earned a bonus of more than $16,000, according to a payslip seen by the FT, while her total annual package easily outstripped $100,000. Nor was she among the highest earners, like the sales reps from Florida and other lucrative states, known as the toppers internally, who were rewarded with luxury trips to Hawaii and the Caribbean, she says. However, almost as soon as she joined, she says she felt queasy about the company's ethics. For a start, she claims her managers played down Purdue's 2007 settlement with the US Department of Justice, which saw it plead guilty to criminal charges of misleading regulators and doctors over the addictive properties of OxyContin. She says, They said, we were sued, they accused of us mismarketing, but that wasn't really the case. In order to settle it, and get it behind us, we paid a fine. You had the impression they were portraying it as a little bit of a witch hunt. Purdue said in a statement, In 2007, the company accepted responsibility for the actions of certain Purdue supervisors and employees in connection with marketing OxyContin before that time. We paid a significant fine, as well as a heavy price in terms of public trust to suggest that we did not substantially change our practices is simply wrong. The 2007 plea deal did little to stem Purdue's blistering growth rate. In the following two years, the drug maker regrouped, hiring more than 100 new sales reps to boost revenues from OxyContin. By 2010, the medicine was pulling in more than $3 billion a year. One Purdue executive says, they did not listen to their critics and insisted they had just a few isolated problems. After the settlement, they didn't change. The way the sales force was managed and incentivized, everything stayed the same. Andrew Kolodny, an expert on the addiction epidemic at Brandeis University, says Ms. Panara's experiences are critically important because they show it was business as usual at Purdue following the 2007 settlement. He says, The bulk of what Purdue has done to cause this epidemic stems from their promotion of the drug as safe and effective for chronic pain. All of that continued after the plea deal, and the result was they paid a fine, but there was no significant change in their behaviour. Lawyers working on the current legal effort against Purdue say the question of whether the company reformed itself after the plea deal could become a critical issue. That is because the deal included a non-prosecution agreement, stating there will be no further criminal prosecution or forfeiture action by the United States for any violations of law occurring before May 10, 2007. Ms. Panara says she and her colleagues were instructed to market the drugs to general practitioners treating common ailments like back pain rather than only to pain specialists and oncologists more experienced with opioids and their risks. She says, They had us calling on family doctors, because there are many more family doctors out there than pain management doctors. If a doctor expressed concern about a patient showing signs of addiction, Ms. Panara was trained to counter those fears by educating them on so-called pseudo-addiction, she says. For example, an addict might turn up at the surgery requesting a fresh batch of pills before their 30-day supply should have run out, claiming they had lost the tablets or accidentally dropped them down the toilet. 
The advice she was told to give the doctor was that the patient's dosing was too low and should be increased. She says, The theory of pseudo-addiction was that a patient might exhibit these drug-seeking behaviours, but if their pain were adequately managed by giving a higher dose, then that drug-seeking behaviour would cease. Thereby, we were building their tolerance, building their physical dependence, and making them an addict. Another sales rep says they were discouraged from reporting a suspicious doctor's surgery to the authorities. A possible pill mill that might have been set up with the express purpose of prescribing and profiting from opioid painkillers. A person close to the company says they tried to tell their superiors, but were told they could not report the surgery because it was a satellite outpost of a larger practice that was located in another sales rep's region. The rep says... It was only open two and a half days a week. It was a small, dirty, bare room with plastic chairs. But it was always packed with patients. Ms. Panara's managers warned her not to overtly claim that OxyContin was better or safer than other opioids, which is what landed the company in so much trouble in 2007. However, she says she was trained to talk about the product in ways that implied it was safer. For instance... Ms. Panara touted the benefits of a 12-hour formulation, which releases the drug into the body over a longer period of time than traditional opioids. She says, You could say that with a shorter-acting medication that wears off after six hours, there was a greater chance the patient was going to jump their dosing schedule and take an extra one a little earlier. We couldn't say it was safer, but I remember we were told that doctors are smart people. They're not stupid. They'll understand. They can read between the lines. In its statement to the FT, Purdue said, We have strived to do better. It said it had strengthened its ethics and compliance program, repeatedly retrained its sales force, and in early 2018, ceased all promotion of opioids. A person close to the company says it has not received a warning letter from the US Food and Drug Administration since 2003 related to OxyContin promotion. Ms. Panara and another sales rep say they were incentivized to increase not just sales of OxyContin, but also generic versions of extended-release OxyCodone. Whereas pharma salespeople are usually compensated based on their ability to grow sales of a particular medicine, part of the bonus for Purdue staff was calculated according to the size of the overall market, according to compensation statements seen by the FT. The setup meant that Purdue's marketing force was indirectly supporting sales of millions of pills marketed by rival companies. Between 2008 and 2010, roughly $1.3 billion worth of generic extended-release oxycodone was prescribed by doctors, according to figures from ICVIA, a data provider. One official at the US Department of Health and Human Services describes the setup as unusual, saying... It's the equivalent of asking a McDonald's store manager to grow sales of Burger King and KFC. But Ronnie Gao, a Bernstein analyst, says, As the leader in the field, Purdue would not have been able to grow the pie unless they could get physicians to prescribe more opiates overall. A former senior manager at the company describes the strategy as a one-two punch explaining that as long as doctors were comfortable prescribing an opioid, even if it was not Purdue's, 
then sales reps could convert them to OxyContin in time. One company that would have also benefited from greater demands for opioids is Rhodes Pharma, a drug maker also owned by the Sackler family. The Rhode Island-based company was set up in 2007, according to registration documents filed in Delaware, just four months after Purdue pled guilty to misleading patients and doctors. Rhodes has not been publicly connected to the Sackler family before, and their ownership of the company may weaken one of their defences, which is that they cannot be held responsible for the opioid crisis because Purdue accounts for a small fraction of overall prescriptions. In an article on its website entitled Common Myths About OxyContin, Purdue says, The terms oxycodone and oxycontin are often used interchangeably. News reports often mistakenly refer to oxycontin, even when other medications containing oxycodone are specifically named by authorities. The article says oxycontin accounted for just 1.7% of total opioid prescriptions in 2016. However, according to figures seen by the FT, Rhodes is a much larger producer of opioids by volume, and the combined companies accounted for 14.4 million prescriptions that year, giving them an overall market share of 6% in 2016. That would make Purdue Rhodes the seventh largest opioid manufacturer in the US, just behind the generic drug-making giant Teva, and well ahead of many of the other companies targeted in the recent wave of litigation, such as Johnson & Johnson, Endo, and Depomed. According to an FDA database, Rhodes Pharma makes a wide range of opioid products containing highly addictive opiates, such as morphine, oxycodone, and hydromorphone. Although registered as a separate entity from Purdue, employees say that little distinction is made internally between the two companies. Staff share the same employee handbook, according to a copy of the 2017 manual seen by the FT. A former senior manager at Purdue says Rhodes was set up as a landing pad for the Sackler family in 2007 to prepare for the possibility that they would need to start afresh following the crisis then engulfing OxyContin. It could still serve the same purpose, he says, noting the company's decision to hire restructuring experts last month. People familiar with Purdue's finances say they are under pressure as it struggles to contend with mounting legal bills and falling sales of OxyContin. The former employee is one of hundreds of people who have departed the drug maker this year, some of whom left because they knew people who had become addicted. The person says... There were a lot of people who had personal experiences, family members and friends who became addicted, and they started to ask if the benefits of opioids outweigh the risks. I think that unless you're a zealot, it's hard to see that they do not. On the FT's Behind the Money podcast this week, David Crow goes in-depth on Purdue Pharma's hold on the opioid market. You can find that episode and subscribe to the Big Read podcast and all the usual channels. Plus, if you're not yet an FT subscriber, take a look at our latest discount offer at ft.com slash offer 50. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. 
We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.